Hello and welcome to Valley West Cinemas. I'm your host Aaron and this is usually the podcast where we take a group of related films and eliminate all but three, except today we're actually not eliminating any movies. For today's episode I have a list of great or important documentaries and I didn't think it would feel right to keep a skateboarding documentary but eliminate a documentary about the Holocaust, especially with this list because I only chose good or important movies. These are all documentaries that are worth discovering and discussing. And I really think that how much you enjoy or respect a documentary greatly depends on how much you connect with the material, whether it's a passing interest in true crime or an obsessive interest in true crime or certain eras or world experiences, things like that. One documentary subject might mean a whole lot more to you than it does to me or anyone else. And of course, critically, you can judge documentaries. You can critique how the films are put together, how it's edited, and especially how it's presented or even not presented. Sometimes these documentaries can be incredibly one-sided. And so there's all sorts of things you can do to actually rate and review documentaries, of course. They're films, just as any other. But for this show, I didn't want I didn't want to choose a top three when all of these are worth learning about. So for this week, there's no elimination. We're just going to go through all these and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. Hopefully you will find something of interest. I do recommend all of these for different reasons that we'll get into. The first on this list is potentially the most famous or at least recognizable name, and that is Catfish. And while they did make a multi-season MTV reality show called Catfish the Series, starring the subject of the original film, please don't hold that against it, okay? The original 2010 documentary Catfish is scary and incredible. Even now, even after seasons of the Catfish TV show, the movie still hits hard. And of course, it gave us the term Catfish, which has now entered the public lexicon. In the movie, Neve, the main subject is a guy named Neve, and he meets a girl online and they form an online relationship and his friends decide to document their relationship. And so this is kind of where some of the, not really controversy, but accusations of whether or not it's real come into play because Morgan Spurlock, the guy who made Super Size Me, he called Catfish the greatest fake documentary ever made. It sort of haunted the film this whole time about how real it really is. It's amazing what they were able to discover. So while he's in this online relationship, as you may know from the term catfish, they learn that this woman he's dating isn't who she says she is. And they go down this very dark, very scary rabbit hole of trying to find out what's going on. And the directors did go on to make Paranormal Activity 3 and 4. So take that for what you will. My guess is maybe some of the footage was recreated. To this day, they still deny that any of it was fake. They are just the luckiest documentary filmmakers in the world. Uh, that they were able to capture these early days of social media when it was still sort of innocent and that their roommate, their friend, stumbled into this incredible false relationship. And maybe they're just exploiting him or maybe they knew ahead of time. I don't know. I don't question the reality of the situation that happened, but I do wonder if some of it was recreated, if they did maybe learn about the truth and then film something that fit with it, that fit that discovery. I don't know. They claim it's real. They claim it's completely real. I highly recommend Catfish, but please try to put the MTV show out of your mind. <laughs> that is not a representation of the film. It's really not. The next is the Up series. This is a series of films and no, it's not related to Disney's movie Up. This is just called the Up series. It's a collection of films. I think the Up series is one of the most incredible series of documentaries ever put on film. And I know that's a grand statement, but I'll explain. And I'm even getting goosebumps now just talking about it. I love the Up series so much. I am a very wistful and nostalgic person, so maybe that's why it connects with me more. But 
This series gets me in the feels. I spent a great deal of my adult life waiting every seven years for a new film. Because that's what this film series did. It started in 1964 with a British television movie called 7-Up. And they interviewed a class of seven-year-olds and about their lives and their futures and what they want to be when they grow up, just talking to kids. And then, seven years later, they made another film called 7 Plus 7, which was later renamed to 14 Up. And these seven-year-olds, seven years later now, of course, are now 14. And they interviewed them again about growing up. And the first movie was all the way back in 1964. And so they did it again, and then they did it again. And then seven years later, they made 21 Up and then 28 up, then 35, then 42, then 49, then 56, and the most recent film was 63 up. Every seven years since 1964, they've gone back and interviewed the same people. If you can imagine hearing what they want to be and their dreams and goals, and then they go back to them when they're 21, and some of them are married, some of them are already divorced, some have kids, and talking to them about their life goals, and then going back to them in their 30s, and then again in their 40s, and talking to them about their disappointments how their lives have changed. And you, especially now, because all these films have already been made, we can go back We can go back and, and binge them, essentially, and just watch them all in order. We can watch these people grow up and see their lives from age 7 to 63. When Richard Linklater made Boyhood, it was praised because he spent 12 years making it, which is pretty incredible still. But this series has gone on for 56 years, from age 7 to 63. That is insane. Almost all of them were made by Michael Apted, who did do narrative films as well. He directed the James Bond movie, The World Is Not Enough, and he did recently die, and so I don't know if they're going to make 70 up, which would be due in a few years. As I age, hearing these people and seeing them in what feels like time travel, in a sense, to hear them be wistful and nostalgic like I feel like I am. And they even talk to them about how the documentaries have affected their lives, how they have to keep coming back to this thing every seven years, and how they sometimes don't want to because they don't want to admit where their lives have gone. And the fear and regret tied to having your youth on film talking about what you want to be and being able to go back and see that you didn't achieve your dreams, that hits me, you know? If I had to give one sort of, not a complaint, but kind of a warning to the average viewer, the first two movies or so, especially the first one being a made-for-television, made-for-British-television documentary, are pretty dry. As the years go on, the films do become more of a traditional documentary format. The first two might not be the easiest watch, but hang in there. The Up series is an incredible achievement. It is. I think 63 Up is streaming. You could probably rent it. I don't know if there's any DVDs of it, but I know that you can buy a DVD set of 7 through 56 Up. But being a British-based documentary series, it's not something that you come across, you know, on a Best Buy shelf. The next one I'm going to talk about is Shoa, S-H-O-A-H. It is a nine-hour documentary. And yes, this is not a television show. This is a film. This is a film that played in theaters that is nine hours long. And it's about the Holocaust. And it's about the people and the towns around the concentration camps. The filmmaker spent 10 years on this. He went from 1975 through the 80s interviewing the people who survived, the people in the area. The film has zero archival footage. There's no black and white footage. There's no pictures of the concentration camps. There's no war footage. It's only what was then present day to him when he was filming. It's just to show what was there after and why they were alive. There is an element of blame. I think the overall theme is that he is blaming the survivors for letting it happen. And they interview townspeople who were miles from the concentration camps who claimed that they had no idea what was going on. 
And what he would do is ask them very disarming questions like, did you ever see a pile of shoes? How many combs did you see? How many trains went by? And he would use this to sort of lead them to a place where they can't completely deny that they knew what was going on. And who's to say? And he even interviews one of the soldiers, one of the German soldiers from the camps. And it's very interesting to hear him sort of try to pass the blame like it wasn't his fault necessarily. And the director maybe doesn't entirely believe that. I think he thinks that anyone who lived is guilty of not stopping what happened, you know, which may or may not be accurate. It's up to you to decide. But the film is haunting. Showa is considered to be one of the best documentaries of all time. And Ebert said that watching it was like an act of witness, but also kind of like self-punishment. There is a sense of blame, definitely, in this film. My one complaint about it is that, of course, being nine hours long, it is a little repetitive. The filmmaker was French. When he is interviewing people, he'll ask a question in French. His translator will translate it to German. The people respond in German. The translator translates it back to French. And the interview goes on like this. And so the interviews fill two to three times longer than they need to be. So the length is a little bit much. And kind of like the Up series, with the amount of years it took to complete, there's really nothing like Shoah. For modern viewers, it is going to be a little dry. Uh, we'll touch on documentary editing in a second here. But this was made, you know, in the early 80s and came out in 85. And at that point, documentary editing was still very dry. It wasn't cinematic yet. But it is absolutely worth seeing. The next is pretty famous, actually. It's called Hoop Dreams. It came out in 94. And it was, to me, at least one of the last of its kind of the old-style editing before MTV editing sort of came around, where movies and TV shows started to be edited at such a quick pace and such a fast clip that it resembled music videos. And it's so normal now. It's just the way things are made now. But there was a period of a few years where things began to be cut in what was seen as too quickly of a way. So like shots and films, cutting back and forth between people talking, cutting around car chases, things like that. If you watch Michael Bay's The Rock, that's also one of the early ones where it really was shot like a music video because in the 90s is when music video directors became filmmakers like David Fincher and Michael Bay. And this was seen as a complaint, but it's just so normal now. Hoop Dreams, you start to see the edit being made as a way to make the documentary entertaining while maintaining its seriousness and its truthfulness. Hoop Dreams has a little bit of both styles. To me, it's the last of the old style of editing. The film is three hours long. It's considered to be one of the best documentaries and even one of the best films ever made. It's about two young high schoolers and the film follows their NBA dreams. It was famously not nominated at the Oscars for best documentary. Hoop Dreams is part of the National Film Registry, so it is considered one of the most important and worth saving American films ever made. And the movie follows not just the two athletes, but their families and their coaches, and it shows the hardship that these inner city kids are going through while trying to achieve this dream. If you watch it now, there's a slight sense of not inappropriateness, but you do question these coaches and their motivation and how they take, uh, well, what seems like ownership over these kids. It's a fascinating film. I think one thing it does really well is that it doesn't dwell on the hardship. Their lives are very difficult. These kids don't have it easy. And the film never wallows. It stays matter of fact. It's very straightforward. It just gives you what happens and lets you decide what to feel for yourself, which is kind of neat. I like that. If I was doing an elimination episode, Hoop Dreams would be one of the three surviving films. It's great. The next is a little lighter. It's The Real Cancun. And if anyone has seen it, 
Please don't get mad at me for including it. I'm not saying it's good, but it's noteworthy. It is absolutely an important film. The Real Cancun was the first movie made by the creators of The Real World, which was also on MTV. I did not purposefully <laughs> mean to bring up MTV three times on this show. If you know The Real World, it's about a bunch of strangers who have to live together in a new place, and the show just follows them around for a couple months while they live together. The Real Cancun is very similar. It may as well have just have been called The Real World, The Movie. A bunch of young, good-looking strangers are sent to Cancun for spring break, and the cameras just follow them around for a week. It was billed as the first reality movie, because it's essentially a reality TV show film, which, all the way back when this came out in 2003, was a new idea. Now it's just regular. The line has been significantly blurred between reality television and documentaries. A lot of what we watch on TV that we call reality TV is just a documentary. If you take out competitions, if you take out Survivor and The Amazing Race, people just making a cake is essentially a documentary. Once they make it a competition, that sort of takes away the integrity to me. But all the way back 20 years ago, wow, the idea of a reality TV movie was unique. In fact, actually, I can't really think of any other examples other than The Real Cancun, to be honest. Now, exactly how much of a documentary it really is, if you're to look at scales, where one side of the scale is documentary and the other side is reality TV, this is definitely definitely a little more reality TV. Because it's not just filming Spring Break. They cast it. They cast the film. They picked these people. I bet they expected something a little more naughty because the movie is rated R. They can show, you know, nudity and profanity. It's about Spring Break, for crying out loud. But it's surprisingly chaste. There is some sexual content, but for one of those, we can't show you this on television sort of marketing campaigns, it is surprisingly innocent. The Real Cancun did have one of the fastest turnaround times of any film I've ever seen. From the time they filmed it to it opening in theaters was only one month, which is bonkers. That is nuts. The trailer came out before they even filmed the movie. <laughs> I do wish that it wasn't such a light R rating. And of course, I mean, being, quote, reality, they can't completely control the situation. I'm sure they tried. But if you're making an R-rated kids on spring break, this is what it really is like sort of movie, go for it, you know? The movie itself is not great. I would call it trashy fun. It's not on this list because it's good. It's definitely not for everyone. It's on this list because it's noteworthy as the first reality movie, and it is an interesting concept. It is rare for what it is. The next is an absolute favorite of mine. I've said before that I'm not a sporty person, okay? I don't like surfing. I don't like skateboarding. I don't like boxing. And yet, weirdly, I love surfing, skateboarding, and boxing movies. Go figure. The next title is Dogtown and Z-Boys. And this documentary was made into a feature film, a narrative film starring Heath Ledger called The Lords of Dogtown, which I also highly recommend. I love The Lords of Dogtown. This documentary, Dogtown and Z-Boys, is about the Zephyr team, which was a skateboarding team in the 70s. And the film was made by one of them. And so you get this nice sort of candid, real conversation from the people he interviews because these are people who he knew growing up. They were in this together. The film covers the era when there was a major drought in California and people had to empty their swimming pools. And a group of friends who were surfers and also skateboarders began to skateboard inside these empty swimming pools. They are credited with the birth of extreme skateboarding. The Zephyr team may not have been the first people to skateboard in an empty swimming pool, but they are the ones to make it popular. They're the ones who were featured in magazines, who went on to competitions, and back then, skateboarding competitions were a little plain, and these skateboarders were punk. This is the era that birthed Tony Hawk and the X Games. This is them. This is where it started. 
The documentary covers that era of the 1970s, rock and roll changing, and the sun and the surf, and the attitude of Southern California. But it goes into a great bit of detail about how the surfing scene turned into skateboarding. For anyone who grew up in the 80s and even the early 90s, skateboarding was a huge deal. If you could ride a skateboard, you were cool, you know? <laughs> and we had movies like Gleaming the Cube and Prayer for the Roller Boys. Stacy Peralta, the director who was one of the original skateboarding kids, he's not the most experienced filmmaker. He has gone on to do more things. And so the documentary isn't as, as loose as I would hope it would be. But that's a very minor complaint. I love Dogtown and Z-Boys. If I had to pick between it and the film, the, the movie version, I would actually pick the movie version. I love Lords of Dogtown so much. If you have any interest in skate culture, and again, I'm not a skateboarder by any means, but I still love it. And it's interesting to kind of see the, the lines between how one thing led to another, how surfing with the skateboarding eventually turned into Tony Hawk's pro skater. The next I'll touch on briefly only because it's more of a footnote. It's more noteworthy and important than actually worth seeking out, and it's called Microcosmos. Microcosmos came out in 1996, and if you are familiar with Planet Earth or Frozen Planet or any of those BBC shows with the amazing animal footage, that's essentially Microcosmos. And nowadays, even with our phones and our TVs, we're so used to incredibly high resolution, like 2K, 4K, 8K resolution. But if you've ever seen an old TV show, you understand that we weren't always there yet. Microcosmos is a nature documentary about mostly bugs. And for the film, they had to invent cameras that could zoom in close enough. And I remember when I saw it in theaters, because I actually saw this in theaters, you can see the little hairs on the legs of a bee, and it was mind-blowing. They won a special achievement Oscar just for creating the cameras they used to film Microcosmos. And nowadays, we have technology way beyond that. We're just so used to everything looking amazing. But back then, somebody had to create it. We got to see these things so incredibly clear for the first time. They filmed snails mating in slow motion, and it's incredible looking. Now you turn on BBC or whatever, you can watch anything that looks this great very easily. And so for that reason, maybe it's, maybe you don't need to go back and watch Microcosmos. I'm sure we would have developed cameras anyway, but this movie, for those reasons, did it first. The next one is a little bit of an odd thing. <laughs> maybe not even a little bit. It's a very odd thing. It's called Visitors. It's a bit of a stretch to call it even a documentary. It's by Godfrey Reggio, who did Koyaanisqatsi. It has incredible music by Philip Glass. The theme of the movie is humanity and technology, but the reality of the movie is that it's almost entirely just black and white, slow motion close-ups of people's faces. It'll fade up on someone's face, looking into the camera, and then it'll fade to black. And then fade up on someone else's face, and then fade to black. And that's almost entirely it. And it's weirdly fascinating. Every once in a while, they'll throw in animals or technology like there's this I don't even really know how they filmed it but there's this really beautiful part where they film somebody texting in slow motion but you just see their thumbs and if you look at yourself texting with both hands in order to make room on the keyboard when you move one thumb in one direction the other thumb moves away from it and back and forth you know you're because your thumbs don't hit right when you're texting but by filming that in slow motion and close up it looks like your thumbs are dancing and sort of like evading each other it's weirdly hypnotic it's beautiful many people probably would be bored by this because, again, it is almost entirely just black and white slow motion people's faces, and that's it. So, again, as I said, a stretch maybe to call it a documentary. Depends on how you define that, I guess. And while they say it's about humanity and technology, it doesn't really have an obvious theme like the Katsi trilogy because Koinus Katsi is the first, and then there was Pawakatsi and Nekwakatsi. If you haven't heard of those, we'll discuss another time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> if you have heard of them, you know what I'm talking about. 
but Visitors doesn't really have that obvious theme or message. It's still hypnotic, it's still beautiful, but its only real fault is that there's not really a good explanation for why or what the point was of making it necessarily. It's more of an experiment than anything. Maybe experimentary, docuperiment, I don't even know a good word for that. It's an abstract experimental film. I think it's fascinating, but it's probably pretty hard to convince anyone (laughs) necessarily that it's even really a movie. But it's on here because stylistically it's unique. It's relatively recent. I love it, but for every one of me, there's probably a thousand people that would wonder what I'm even talking about. So take that for what you will. The next documentary is called Blind Spot Hitler's Secretary. Along the lines of Showa, this is a movie about someone who didn't really understand or believe what was going on during the Holocaust. And more specifically, as the title says, it's just a talking head interview with the woman who was Hitler's secretary. And she was 1920, I think, when this happened. And the entire movie is just her face, just her talking to us. What makes it interesting and fascinating is the sort of sadness, but also denial and the reality of what happened because they were lied to a great deal. The propaganda machine was strong in Germany. And so she didn't believe some of the stories that were being told about what the Germans were doing. And also, a lot of that simply was just hidden. They were told, we're winning, so they believed it. They were told, there are no camps, so they believed it. So she only saw Hitler as this strong leader. It was like working for the president and for the war to end and the reality to hit her, for her to spend decades looking back on her own ignorance. It's so sad. (laughs) And, And to hear from someone who was there is endlessly interesting. And you get to see the complication of those emotions. You get to see her weighing those because she still has her memories and her own guilt, even though she personally wasn't responsible, but still having that guilt all these years later. It's a very sweet, sad movie. It really is just an interview with her. So it's not the most elaborately made documentary. Having that information, having that knowledge of someone who was there and having their perspective to me is is amazing. The next one is called Four Little Girls. It was made by Spike Lee. It came out in 97, and he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary for it. The film is about the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama. As the title suggests, four little girls ages 11 to 14 were killed in the bombing. In the film, the bombing is used as context for the era, for 1963 South. You know, this is not just about the four little girls. It is about them and their families and the effect that their deaths had on the communities. But it's used as one event in an overall greater struggle of that decade and how it brought some of these things to national attention. I've said several times in several other episodes that I will eventually do a Spike Lee episode. I I don't know what is taking me so long, but Spike is a very good documentary filmmaker as well. In addition to Four Little Girls, he also has When the Levees Broke about Hurricane Katrina, which is excellent. Four Little Girls is a very strong film about a very sad event. I do recommend checking it out. The next is the Paradise Lost Trilogy. The first two were made for HBO. Part 3 did go to theaters and was nominated for an Oscar uh, only very recently. The first film, The First Paradise Lost, came out in 1996, and it's about the child murders at Robin Hood Hills. You may have heard the term the West Memphis Three. These are the teenagers who were arrested for the murders of little boys. And in this small town in West Memphis, they put the blame on three teenagers because they wore black clothes and listened to metal. This was the era of 1990s satanic panic. If you have a a teenage boy with long hair who listens to death metal, well, he must be the person who did it because who else would kill a little boy? Now, whether or not they're actually guilty or not, 
I'll leave that to you to decide. The filmmakers present it as if they did not do it. The sequels to Paradise Lost came out in 2000 and 2011. By the third one in 2011, the West Memphis Three entered what's called an Alfred plea to where they plead guilty but maintain their innocence in order to be released. So it's a weird sort of catch-22 that allows them to be released, but because they're pleading guilty, they can't sue the state for wrongful incarceration. Parts two and three are a little heavy in the recaps because the documentaries are presented as if you haven't necessarily seen the previous ones. And so part two repeats a lot of part one and part three repeats a lot of part one and two. So there is a little bit of of that repetition. If you have any interest in true crime at all, I highly, highly recommend the Paradise Lost trilogy, especially that first one. The films could be seen as maybe biased because they presume that the kids are innocent. I'll leave that up to you. There's a lot out there. You can really dive into this whole case. And lastly is a movie that I personally love, but might not work for a lot of people. It's called Los Angeles Plays Itself. It's from 2004. It is three hours long. Uh, And before you Google it, be forewarned, there is a pornographic film also called Los Angeles Plays Itself. This is not that. This is the movie. This is the documentary. It's about the history of LA in the film industry and how they used locations in the city and how Hollywood and filmmaking maybe even changed the landscape of Los Angeles. It's not a travel log, but it does cover a great many locations like, oh, this one apartment building has a neat staircase, and that's why it's in both Blade Runner and uh, some horror movie. It's more like a video essay and how film has preserved the history of Los Angeles. We have so many examples where we can go back in time and see what the city used to be, to be able to go back and see LA in the 40s, and then put on a different movie and see the 50s, and then a different movie and see the 70s, and so on. Los Angeles plates itself covers that in such a mature, introspective manner. If you love movie making and the idea of Hollywood, never mind what Hollywood has necessarily become, but the idea of what movies could be, then maybe Los Angeles Plays itself will be as fascinating to you as it is to me. I love it. And with that, that is our 12 great and or important documentaries. If you have seen or decide to see any of these, please let me know. I'd like to hear your thoughts. I am on Twitter at VWestCinemas or Instagram at Valley West Cinemas underscore podcast. And of course, please rate and review wherever you listen. That really does help. As always, I am Aaron, and we'll catch you next time.